Brian Castle-Zunyan is one of Australia's most beloved and exciting opera conductors. His impish charm and infinite knowledge of the operatic repertoire, historical personalities and vocal technique make him an engaging authority on our rich operatic past. It is no surprise then to learn that his lifetime of collecting recordings of significant vocal artists now sees him as a passionate preservationist of some of Australia's supreme singers. Brian is the producer of the acclaimed CD series of box sets celebrating our operatic history, Great Australian Voices. The collection is released through Desiree Records. There have been 10 volumes released thus far, each serving delicious excerpts from the careers of singers that include Bob Allman, Nats Grant, Maureen Howard, June Bronhill, Marie Collier, Bob Simmons and Geraldine Turner. The recordings are a treat and offer the listener the opportunity to hear how our musical ancestors sounded what they sang, how they sang, who they sang with and what they thought about their roles. An extensive historical and pictorial booklet accompanies each volume with much fascinating detail to devour. Brian joins stages to generously share knowledge of these great singers and contribute once again to preserving our precious arts heritage. He signed them from the drinking halls And was glad his work was done So they drank his health that gloomy night Jensen thanked them with a grin Then he drank the swaps in a hoard As he downed his tumbler of Drinking at the bar, and it gutted and stung me to the core. To know that they don't go to slaughter, and it came to the burning grudge I bore. I was feeling brave and bold by now, from the stuff that makes men fight. So I sneaks across the creaking floor and staggers out. In the night I hide and wait for his clumsy step As he struts his hulk outside Then I slugs him with a mighty blow And drags him down to the same old barroom just before I put to sea and they drink and a lifeless person ha 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 not of the flood The episode opened today with baritone Robert Simmons singing The Devil of the Floridee by Joseph Mendelssohn. Just one of the many singers who feature in a celebrated CD series called Great Australian Voices. The series has been produced by my guest today, maestro Brian Castles-Onion, who joins me remotely via the magic of technology. Welcome back to Stages, Brian. Hi, Peter. It's weird doing this over the, the internet. It's very strange. I'm just used to face-to-face -to -face talking. 
there you are down in the Southern Highlands and I'm in the inner West. And um, uh, is. it's like we're across the table. It is. But how look, you, I was... How, how, how are you faring in isolation? Well, it's not much different from our, our normal life, <laughs> I must say, except that usually I you know, spend five hours at, at least a day um, traveling uh, six days a week into rehearsals. But um, I yes, don't you would, you would now, normally so be um, conducting opera on the harbour at the moment, wouldn't you? Yes, yes. We got to the end of the third week of rehearsals and um, on the Monday morning we uh, would, well, the uh, first orchestral reading that I have with the orchestra, with one of the orchestras, was cancelled um, and then the next day we were due to start rehearsals at the venue itself and uh, later on the Monday afternoon, we got a message to say that everything had been cancelled. The world had been cancelled. So yes. it was a, a great shame. And, you know, I, I was, look, I love Traviata, uh, but this, both these casts were absolutely wonderful. Um, I was, I was really looking forward to it. The dancers and look, it, it, it was, it was great. Anyway. Yes, yeah, so the coronavirus pandemic is just a great tragedy. I mean, you're just one of tens of thousands in the art sector who have been affected and effectively had their their, their work just just halted indefinitely. I know, and who knows when it's going to end? But yeah, yeah. But like, I just hope that the uh, the world at large realizes what a great uh, investment we um, entertainers give to the rest of the world, yeah. because without us, you know, there there is no culture. No, no, we need that's, stories. That's pretty profound. It is. I, we do. For this hour of the day, um, I wanted to catch up with you again on stage, just to examine yeah. a very special project that you've been working on for oh, quite but a look, while I, now. I was really pleased that you opened with. Uh, one of the great finds for me uh, when I was researching this uh, four CD set, which includes 39 singers uh, who were Australian singers who were active between the 1948, the end of the, the um, Second World War and the opening of the Sydney Opera House. These are singers who were neglected to be recorded by commercial recording companies. So their voices have been lost. Um, you've accomplished an yeah. extraordinary feat in compiling these recordings and capturing some astonishing examples of vocal performance. You're, you're preserving our operatic history, aren't you? Well, ab absolutely. Um, it's it's um, a quest I have, and it's I do it with with love. I you know I lose tens of thousands of dollars because you know who buys recordings these days, but um, it it was it's a passion that I have, and well with with this great Australian Voices series, um, I, I not look getting the recordings themselves for me has been the easiest part, uh, but with with the um, the golden years that we're talking about right now. Um, there were 39 singers. At least a quarter of them are not mentioned in any books or certainly online. And in the production of the you know, rather glamorous um, book format CDs, um, I had to include biogs of these people. And that for me was super hard, uh, but also a great joy because if you you know, if, if you've got a grandmother who has done something or a grandfather, um, you know what, perhaps when they were 
born, perhaps you know when their birthday was. You have no idea usually what they did before they met, met your, your other grandparent. Um, where do they study? Uh, who do they study with? And certainly with opera singers, what roles did they sing? Uh, who were their singing teachers? Who were the people who inspired them? And and wh what others, you know, who were their colleagues in these uh, performances? And at least a quarter of that, like 10 or 12, I actually had to be a Sherlock Holmes and find out all this inform information. And it's been great because um, grandchildren of some of these things have contacted me and they had absolutely no idea that they, you know, the, the previous generations had been in the great art form of opera. And look, that, that, that's been a great thing for me. I, I love it. Tell us, tell us about Robert Simmons. Well, Robert Simmons uh, was part of the nest, the of of the mother chicken, uh, Gertrude Johnson, who was a soprano in her own right, and you know sang some roles, you know, in, in the UK in Covent Garden with Melba. She was a Melba protege in the very early twenties, and sang Musetta. Uh, Alongside the Mimi of uh, Nellie Melba in Act Four at um, Melba's Farewell at Covent Garden. But then she came to Australia and in the sort of mid 40s started what was known as the National Opera School. And she had a little nest of six or eight um, teenagers uh, who included John Shaw, Robert Allman, Marie Collier. Uh, Betty Fretwell, as she was known then, the great Elizabeth Fretwell, one of our superstars. Was there much operatic training in Australia at that time? Yes, there was. There, um, there, there, you know, there's always been singing teachers around and, uh, and there were opera companies, like the Italian Opera Company came to Australia about three times. There was the Fuller Opera Company came uh, in the 1920s and opera, you know, the, the, the main casts came out from the UK and, you know, with Florence Austral, you know, one of our greatest sopranos, she she came back and, you know, Melba came with her own company uh, in the first J.C. Williamson tour. And, um, but, you know, there were the students who got, um, what is the word? Uh, they, they, they honed their craft singing in the chorus or singing tiny roles with these visiting opera companies, the National Opera. And, you know, John Shaw, you know, sang in the chorus and sang, a, you know, a tiny role and, and Jeff Chard, you know, it, it was, there's always been opera training in Australia, but the National Opera under Gertrude Johnson was the first real uh, centre for learning the craft of how to perform and sing opera in Australia. So Gertrude's little nest of students, her protégés included you know, the great John Shaw, Robert Allman, uh, Marie Collier, um, Loris Elms, Lance Ingram, who became Ambulance, uh, and the baritone was Robert Simmons. And look, I've, I've always been connected with, or talk, I've always chatted with those old singers and sort of befriended them. And both John Shaw and Bob Allman, you know, the, the great baritones, lion voices of Australia, they both told me that Bob Simmons was the greatest baritone of, of the three of them. So Robert Simmons was the 
real star baritone of the National Opera Studio. Gertrude Johnson gave him the main roles in her opera productions. You know, she sang, he sang Scarpia uh, with Marie Collier as, as um, Tosca. He, he, like the others, went to overseas. Most of the Gertrude Johnson students went to Dominique Modesti in Paris to study. And Modetti, Modesti was the, the uh, whiz-bang singing teacher of the time and did some really good work with some people and really bad work with other people. It's like every singing teacher. Well, uh, uh, the great singing teachers, they have one or two great students and the rest, you know, nothing. I shouldn't say that, but it's true. But um, Bob Simmons went to the UK and did a little bit of work and uh, sang compromario roles, character roles uh, in operas with, with Opera Australia originally. And then he uh, had, he suffered badly from uh, diabetes, which affected his voice. And he eventually um, ended up as an actor on television in Homicide and, and other various cop shows. And um, sadly, that was the end of his career. So people knew who he was, yet he was the greatest of them all. So I was really pleased to preserve some of his rare recordings, including that fabulous The Devil of the Flora D, a weird song. But people used to sing that, that sort of repertoire in those days, and they're wonderful songs written for really operatically trained voices. And, you know, opera singers these days should try singing the, that sort of repertoire rather than, than Broadway you know, or in pop songs. Uh, you started collecting recordings when I believe you were four years old, and uh, the first one being La Boheme from 1938 with uh, Gigli and Albanese. <laughs> Gigli and Albanese, yes, and it was Act Three and Four. <laughs> it was Act Three and Four because in those days it was a two LP set, and you could buy um, just one of the records at a time. And um, eventually I got, you know, Act 1 and Act 2. But I actually remember in those days, I think I've told you before, that I remember putting the needle down on Act 3 and hearing this sort of, you know, uh, snow-like music. And um, every time I've conducted uh, Boheme, when Act 3 starts, I remember that moment when I was, I, I was just over four. I wasn't even four and a half at the time, but I remember it and I listened to the whole side, Act 3, because it's only like ooh, 20 minutes long. It's, it's the great act of, of Boheme. You could happily do Act 3 of Boheme and not have the rest of the opera. And at that young age, what was it about the recorded voice that captivated you? Was it the grand storytelling of opera? Is it the big emotions, the big sound? I think, I think it was the sound because at four, I had absolutely no idea what the story would be and I wouldn't understand the story. Uh, it took a couple of years before I, I knew what passion was. You can say that. Um, but no, it was the sound because I was brought up listening to recordings of Kenneth McKellar, which I, I think I've told you before. It's famous, my connection with Kenneth McKellar and um, uh, the films of Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy. And I love Jeanette and I still do. And I still absolutely adore Kenneth McKellar. They were my... Uh, in. Uh, introductions to classical sounds from from the human voice. But I'm not sure exactly why I decided I wanted that uh, Boheme recording, but it was there and that's the thing that started me. Where did the idea germinate to uh, produce this, this series of CDs? Well, many years ago, 
when I realized that there was a way to transfer and so-called preserve recordings, old tapes, um, you know, cassettes and reel-to-reel tapes um, into onto the CD medium because we all thought that it was going to be a lasting thing. And so I, I had a couple of cassettes and I tra- had them transferred uh, with a friend who had a studio. And when that was successful, I decided I would write letters to about 40 old singers who I had sort of known and or they sort of knew me. So, and I said, look, you've got any recordings of yourself um, that, you know, I could just borrow the, the tapes and then you can, you know, give copies to your grandchildren or whatever, whoever. And it's a true story that within about six months, at least a third of those old singers had died. And I remember the phone rang one night, and it was Rosalind Keane, um, that absolutely gorgeous soprano who used to do Bobby Lim's Sound of Music. But she was a very, very admired um, coloratura soprano in Australia and sang really impressive roles in Australian premieres. And she she said, look, um, I've just told my son to uh, give you all the master tapes that I have from the ABC. And uh, there, there were huge boxes of, of all these old tapes. And she said, because I'm not long for the world. And about two weeks later, she died. She was in, rang me from hospital. And um, I remember Rosina Raisbeck, that uh, abs- uh, I hold her on in high esteem. She had an unbelievably wonderful career as a soprano overseas um, at Covent Garden at the time and then came back to Australia singing mezzo-soprano roles and she had uh, perhaps a 50-year career on stage and wonderful. She was a dragon, you know. If if you were uh, um, singing, if you were male and singing in a concert uh, and wearing a tuxedo and weren't wearing patent leathers, she would go up to you after the show and go for the jugular that you must wear patent leather shoes when you're on stage wearing a tuxedo but anyway she walked she, she made a special she, she was in her 80s at the time she made a special trip into the opera center and, and i remember walking into the green room she was quite tall and stately she was like you know the queen mother and she threw this vinyl record um, um set not set um sort of a bag with a zipper around and she said look just throw the in, in the garbage when you finish with them. And they were the acetates of her um, Covent Garden um, Flying Dutchman and her Goethe Dimmerung um, and it, uh, just uh, wonderful things that I kept. Anyway, um, I had released, I think, seven CDs altogether of Joan Sutherland. Um, she had asked me to, you know, um, produce recordings of her the BBC broadcasts that she owned and the Mobile Quest performances of her as a teenager at 17, 18 and 19, singing Aida and Tannhäuser, you know, not very well, but she was a student at the time. And, you know, and the Mobile Quest was one of the only singing competitions of its kind in the world. And it launched many careers. Anyway, and and uh, there, there were rehearsal tapes and things that Joan gave me. So I, I produced those. There were three volumes of Sutherland Rarities and two CD sets of her live in Australia in 1965. Anyway, so I was, um, I always wanted to release a CD of, 
she actually has like a, a series of CDs, one CD, a single CD each, um, honoring a single singer, like Robert Allman or Nance Grant or the, the first person I really wanted to honor was Marjorie Lawrence, who was our great Wagnerian, uh, along with Florence Ostrel. And that never came to fruition. I tried to get funding from various people and no one was interested because it was from the past and no one was interested in that. So I was at uh, an Australia Day luncheon at someone's house and this guy came to me, he was chatting about recordings and I told him about this. And he said, look, um, I own Fish Records in Sydney. <laughs> look, look, why don't you just do it and I'll help you with it and we'll sell them for you exclusively. So I got funding from someone to do the first two sets. And I thought, you, you, I can't just do a single CD in a jewel box like everyone else. So I went to the most lavish and most expensive CD manufacturer you can do, which is this like glossy um, CD book format. And it turned out to be a three CD set uh, with, you know, a 60-page booklet, which included um, absolutely accurate details of who this person was when they were born, uh, who they studied with, what roles they sang, who they sang with, with exact dates. And also, I wanted to be personal, that they, um, they told me what roles were their favourite roles and why? Not just because oh, it has a great aria in it, no, because they were what they were able to bring of themselves to these roles. So the first two singers I did, 3D, three CD sets, were Nance Grant, you know, the fabulous Mozart, Richard Strauss soprano, who I speak to every second day still, and Robert Allman. And two weeks after I picked the Allman um set from the manufacturer, Bob died. And it um, you know, it had a lot of coverage in, in the in the press. And and hence Bob's CD set sold really well. It's a terrible thing to say. And Bob was like my uncle. He, we spoke two or three times a day. I knew all his gossip. We're going to uh, have the, the luxury of listening to a few of your selections from the, the series today. And we're going to start with a, a wonderful woman and an extraordinary talent who you introduced me to. I'm talking, of course, of Maureen Howard. What can you tell us about Maureen? I love Maureen. She died you know, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I, I, you know, Maureen and I would talk to each other every two or three days. And um, I called her bedside her hospital bedside telephone and um, someone uh, answered and they said, oh no, she's, you know, she's you know, like almost comatose. And I heard, who is it? Who is it? <laughs> and I said, it's Brian. She said, I want to talk to him. She, she had a couple of words to me and I said, you know, Maureen, I love you. She said, yes, I love you too. And that was the last word she ever spoke. Anyway, but look, I knew of Maureen from when I was a child from a series of postcards, this sounds so weird, postcards that Opera Australia released um, when I was a child. I'm not going to tell you what year it was um, because I'm only 23 now. And on one of the postcards was a production shot of Pagliacci, which had Donald Smith as Canio and 
Maureen Howard as Nidda. And I used to read, you know, um, in books about Maureen and blah, 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 blah. But I never met her. And then I was in the green room talking to a chorister once, and there was this, you know, quite sprightly um, blonde bobbed hair were sort of bobbing along the, the wall um, into the one of the dressing rooms. And I said to the chorister, who's that? They said, oh, it's Maureen Howard. For goodness, you know. Anyway, years later, um, I was in Newtown, sort of a couple of years after I, I was, got married, and the phone rang. And this woman said, hello, um, my name is Maureen, Maureen um, McKenna. And um, I used to be known as Maureen Howard. Uh, a friend of mine told me that I should contact you because I want to see if I can still sing. And so she came in and we worked, I don't know, every two or three days. And um, she'd been having some listens with, um, uh, with John Germain. Um, at the time, you know, to keep her in trim. But anyway, so we, we did some coachings and I really liked her. And she was no nonsense. You know, she was blonde and sort of airheaded, but absolutely no nonsense and really good. And after, I don't know, about five or six months, I had to prepare the Robert Allman Farewell Gala. It was the, the only time Opera Australia have ever done a gala honouring um, one of their artists, you know, John Shaw had a season of three operas they gave him, you know, in, in one go as a farewell. Joan Sutherland had the you know, final performance of um, Les Huguenots in 1990. That was her farewell. But Bob had a full evening. They did Act Two of Otello with him as Iago. And they did Act Two of Die Fledermaus, the, um, the, the, that wonderful Lindy Hume production. But in the middle of it, in the middle of Act Two, as is frequently done, they have a guest performer come on. And so um, we all had organised to, to have a cabaret sequence. And I, I got Bob to come in and sing uh, an aria. Well, actually it was the prologue to Pagliacci, and he said in, in English. And Geraldine had written him new words um, about, you know, um, this is my moment, you know, blah, blah, blah. And halfway through the prologue, we stopped, and Bob said, ladies and gentlemen, um, when word got out that I... Um, I was retiring um, and doing a concert. I got hundreds of requests. Bob, you must sing this, you must sing that, you must sing blah, blah, blah. Well, here they all are. And I wrote him uh, an aria which I think included 31 of his roles, you know, just snippets of each thing and put it together and I conducted the whole thing and blah, blah, blah. So what was about a five-minute standing ovation at the end of the Allman aria, um, I had five or six singers who had worked with Bob over the years um, come out and do truncated scenes from the operas they'd appeared in. And, you know, we had Joan Carden doing a bit of Traviata with him and Anson Austin doing Bohème um, and and Joan, uh, Heather Big doing her last bit of Carmen uh, with him. And I uh, had organised for Maureen to come on and sing a bit of Nedda uh, from Pagliacci with Bob. She came out wearing the uh, coat that Suzanne Steele had given her years ago, looking fantastic, and she absolutely stole the show. It was unbelievable. I, mean, I gave Joan Sutherland a, a copy of the DVD, and she, she that was the first thing she said. She said, that woman just stole the show. Um, so 
And after, after that, um, Opera Australia gave her um, contracts to understudy um, Lady Macbeth, Betty's uh, Macbeth, and the witch in Hensel and Gretel. But the great thing that that I feel really good about was that Maureen didn't have a good time with the opera company. She was a star, as you know, many people know from her teen years, and uh, she was a star with Opera Australia, so much so that I think in 1969, yeah, so Opera Australia mounted a production of Madame Butterfly for Maureen. The problem was that the conductor, Carlo Felice Cilario, wanted someone else as the, to, to sing the role. One of his romances in Australia, we found out many years later. And at, on the first day of rehearsals, the director, or in those days they used to call them the producer, the director um, walked with the you know visiting conductor, Chilario, and said, you know, this is blah, 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 this is your Pinkerton, you know, they shook hands, and this is, you know, the Suzuki, they shook hands, or nice to meet you, whatever. And this is Maureen Howard, your Chucho san and Chilario walked straight by her, totally ignored her. That's terrible. Which he did, which he did. For the entire season and it broke maureen's heart because you know as you know well peter that you know she was a lovely conversationalist <laughs> for beautiful, one thing. Beautiful, and she's lovely yeah anyway so he never spoke to her at all and after that her, you know her career wasn't as great as she was hoping and um so after this uh, 25 years later, the Robert Allman Farewell Gala, she got the contract to sing the cover of Lady Macbeth at the first, well, at the two-stage orchestrals, the lady, the soprano contractor for Lady Macbeth called in sick, as she usually did. And so Maureen went on. Chilaria was conducting. And he went up to her after the second one, and he said, you are absolutely fantastic. Why have I never, you know, heard of you before? Blah, blah, blah. You're wonderful. I oh, wish dear. we'd worked together. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and Maureen said, you know, it was like she'd come full circle. And she was happy that that nastiness from 1969 had suddenly been, had, had vanished. And so she closed her bag, and that was it. That was the end of her singing career. So, look, I was I was really pleased, and Maureen told me a couple of times. She said, "You know, you you were you were the person who actually saved me, you know, musically in my mind." So I was I was really pleased for that. But you know, I, I would do that for anyone else, you know, I loved. <laughs> Thank you. 
there we go. That was the great Maureen Howard. Now, what about Elsie Morrison, who was a, a singer born in Ballarat? And how many wonderful singers were born in Ballarat? Yeah, Elsie Morrison, I never met her. Um, many of the people that I know and you know chat to all the time sang with her. Apparently she was an absolutely divine person. Her voice wasn't great, but it was special. It had a, a communicative value to it that spoke to absolutely everyone's soul. It was it was she was an honest performer and absolutely charming. She sang a couple of roles in Australia. I think it was she sang Mashenka in Bartered Bride, which was her calling card role, as well as her other calling card role, the Mimi in, in Boheme. But she was a profoundly wonderful singer and um, eventually married the conductor Raphael Kubelich and immediately retired, which was um, sort of sad for the rest of the world, but she was very happy. But apparently um, she went to uh, a school, not reunion, but school um, commemorative thing in Ballarat and and sang a song. I can't remember what the song was. It's, it's in the in the bio it's, that I wrote for her. Songs My Mother Taught Me. Songs My Mother Taught Me. The That's divorcer. right. Uh, yeah. Um, and her mother was in the audience. It's wonderful. And that was the last time she ever sang um, in public and probably in private as well. Yes, and she died um, in Prague in 2016, and she was a right old age of 91. Yep, yep. Good honour. And it, it, it must be weird, I, I think, because I'm, I'm very much um, a, an Australian. And um, But, you know, if the, those people who were born here and they leave and never come back. There's another another woman, on um, a soprano on, on that set, um, Althea Bridges, um, an extraordinary name, and she had um, a, a sort of a tiny career in Australia, and she really wasn't used uh, enough. Although she sang, you know, the composer in Ariadne in the in the Sydney premiere or whatever, um, she left in 1965, left Australia, went to Vienna, stayed in Germany, came back to Australia in 1985 for two weeks, and has never returned. And she's living very happily in isolation in Germany. And I get little messages from her. Still, you know, half English, half German. You know, that's that's how her mind thinks. It's it's wonderful. But she she was a profoundly had a great, great, great career. Um, it's just that we had never heard of her. We're gonna to listen to Marie Collier next, uh, also born in Ballarat. Quite only a two decade career, really. Tell me about Marie Collier before we listen to her. Well, Marie Collier, um, she was the great protégé of Gertrude Johnson from the National Opera. Uh, and she was, I believe, the first Australian to have a career made totally by publicity. Because she wasn't a great singer. She had a good, good instrument, but never a good technique. She didn't have command of languages. She sang English really well, I must say. But her Italian, even though, you know, people say, well, she studied in, in Italy for six months. Well, 
year. Um, Harry Chowning wasn't great, uh, but she was electric on stage. I never saw her on live because she died before I was born. And um, people who worked with her said that she never, re never marked never you know just sang with a rehearsal voice she always sang full voice and it was like someone had turned on an, a beacon bulb in a, in a in a lighthouse it was electric um she was a major star in australia and went overseas and and did some things at uh, sadler's wells and then suddenly uh, it, it, it is said that it was um, at short notice, but she knew a long time beforehand um, that she was going to replace Maria Callas one night um, at Covent Garden as Tosca. She went on and, of course, all the publicity was there and um, they were her heralding her as, you know, the next Callas. Um, but she sang a few performances of Tosca at Covent Garden and then that was basically it. Um, and you know, she, she had... Um, a career in the uh, in the USA, um, and she created some roles in at the. Well, she created a role at the Met. Um, the Morning becomes Electra of of Levy, and um, her real um, her real talent was performing the roles of Janacek and some contemporary operas. Uh, they were in English uh, because uh, it, they don't require legato singing, Italian singing, and they are acting roles. And like the Macropolo secret of uh, of Janacek, uh, uh, that wonderful story that, that should make a great musical one day about Emilia Marti, who was, well, I think it was 700 and... 43 years old or something, and um, she'd lived that long because her father had uh, discovered some sort of remedy for long life or, you know, eternal life, and she'd had seven lives or something and under seven different names, all with the initial E-M, as in Emilia Marti. And um, Mari Collier sang that role around the world and was fantastic. Um, it's just a crazy role and there's a huge sort of immolation scene at the end, it was not immolation, but uh, where she just lights a fire and um, she's she's through with life and she throws the recipe of this um, serum into the fire and then she dies. Um, Opera Australia did it well, twice um, a couple of years ago, but it's a wonderful thing. And Mari Collier, because she was that sort of performer, really made that repertoire live in the 20th century. Well, let's have a listen to Marie Collier. The recording you're going to play is from the Adelaide performance in 1968, I think it was, which was the first live telecast uh, made in, in Australia, broadcast um, from a non-ABC um, station. I think it was Channel 7 or Channel 9 in Adelaide. And it only went to a couple of um, cities, but it was still done. But it was uh, with Donald Smith and the great, great, great Tito Gobbi. And she performed Tosca with Gobbi. You know, Tito Gobbi was the great sculptor of his time and sang with everyone, in, including Kalas. But uh, this recording is, was with um, when Gobbi came out 
for that season and um, it's it's electric
Now, of course, a lot of these singers uh, were performing all around the world at the, the Garnier in Paris and London and Moscow and Vienna and Buenos Aires. Australian singers were getting about, weren't they? They were. They always have. Um, I say from Melba and, and, and all those Strella Wilson and um, Evelyn Scott, the, all those, and John Brownlee. Yeah, but they, they, we've always been around the world and still are. But before they went away, um, the, the students of, of Gertrude Johnson um, would appear in a Boheme, for example, at the National Theatre, um, in, like in 1953, with Joseph Post, the great Joe Post, conducting. Um, they did a Boheme in, sung in English with Lance Ingram as Rodolfo, and he was like 21 or something. And I think two years later, he left Australia, went to Paris to study with Modesti and never came back. Um, and he became, changed his name to Abbé Lance and became the great French tenor of his time um, at the Garnier and, and Paris Opera. Um, so we had Lance Ingram and Joyce Simmons was Musetta, um, John Shaw, our, our great you know, baritone was Marcello, Barbara Wilson, the gorgeous, you know, she was supposedly going to be the great star of, of the National Opera, but didn't, um, as Mimi and Robert Ullman as Shawnard and Alan Eddy as Colleen, um, and Stefan Haag, who ran Opera Australia for a while, but he was a director. Um, in this recording you're going to play, he, he sings Alcindoro. Um, who is like the wealthy patron of Musetta. And I think you're going to hear the finale of Act Two. Oh, it's glorious music, isn't it? Uh, Puccini's La Boheme, um, and that is sort of one of the uh, the big high points of of the opera. 
Now, Jennifer Eddy, um, a singer who had a celebrated career, but probably is more known to a lot of people as uh, an artist manager. Yeah, Jenny Eddy uh, was a great, 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 great soubrette soprano. One of our finest. In fact, some people may say our finest. She Melbourne-born and she won all those singing competitions and she was in the first performance of Opera Australia in 1956 um, and in that first season and went to the UK as they all did and had enormous success at um, Covent Garden. She went straight to Covent Garden and then she guested at Sadler's Wells and um, other places with the most spectacular, spectacularly accurate singing and incredibly musical um, and gorgeous on stage and looked wonderful. Um, and then in 1969, um, her voice stopped. Um, and you, 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 one can't really imagine what that would be like for a singer on the up and up uh, because she just signed contracts to um, start you know, to sing roles in the in the states and anyway uh, it took her five a year five years i think for doctors and every specialist known in the world she went to to find out what the problem was and it was a, a physical problem not not vocal but um, it stopped her being able to sing so she packed up, came back to Australia, and with her mother's typewriter, she told me, <laughs> um, uh, started up her the first classical um, classical music agency in Australia, uh, cl classical uh, artist management. So she was um, rep representing musicians and singers and uh, what, directors, singers, conductors, singers, just singers, singers right? and conductors. Yes. Yeah. And um, she basically was the only or the best known agent in Australia for 40 years. And so when any of the other companies were you know, get, you know, deciding on the production they were going to do the following year or the years hence, they would go to her first because she had the best people. And, you know, she ended up um, representing many people like Yvonne Kenny and Bryn Terfel and blah, 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 blah. And people forgot that she actually sang, let alone how well she sang. So we did a three CD set of, of her. And for me, it is the most detailed and most personal of all of them because she, um, well, being an agent, I would, I would, uh, her being an agent, when I would write, you know, a, a bit of copy for the booklet, I would email it to her and she sent it back, you know, a couple of minutes back with corrections, just <laughs> clarifying every, absolutely every detail. Yeah. So in a hundred years time, if someone reads that booklet, they will know exactly who she was and exactly what she did, exactly what colour was her favourite colour. Um, and that's part of the, the deal with these great Australian voices because um, the colour of the booklet and, and, and the discs themselves are the artist's favourite colour. And like with Murray Collier, because she's already dead, I, didn't, I wasn't able to ask her what her favourite colour was, but I found out from her daughter that she loved lilac, so that was it. But with Jenny, I said to her, 
from the get-go, I said, look, now eventually you have to tell me what, what your favorite color is. The next day I got a message, um, green fields with white flowers. And I thought, well, that's not really a color. <laughs> but anyway, we managed it. We managed it. Six. Green fields with white flowers. Yeah, um, but anyway, look, she, she had a fantastic technique, a, a wonderful voice, absolutely sh shone and, um, and, and cute. And this um, track you're going to play is from a live performance at Covent Garden, I think 1965, from Richard Strauss's Arabella. Um, it's the role of Fiacca Milli, and Fiacca Milli doesn't really do anything in in. Arabella, um, she just comes on and stands on a table or on, a, or on a, a trolley or something and sings this incredibly difficult aria. And at the at the time of in this production, she was singing it to the great German Dietrich Disco baritone. Anyway, this is Fiacamilli's aria. Audrey Lawrence is a, a singer that I really knew nothing about until I, I'd seen that MGM film, The Interrupted Melody, starring Eleanor Parker. Well, that's a sin that you didn't know anything about Marge, um, because she was a celebrity. Well, actually, she was a sensation. And I think in the book, I, I use the word sensation a couple of times because she, she left Australia and she went to Paris and became a sensation immediately. And she went to the Met, the Metropolitan Opera in New York, 
and I think she sang eight different roles, not just eight performances, but eight different roles in her first month there. And I think out of the eight, six of them were sung in in German, so she had to relearn, because she had been in Paris and sung the roles in Paris, so she had to relearn those six roles in German, and there were two new roles as well in a month. Um, she was extraordinary, and the film Interrupted Melody, not The Interrupted Melody, sorry for correcting you, um, <laughs> was, you just was, now? <laughs> <laughs> was a, a sort of a, a tamed-down version of her rather tame uh, autobiography called Interrupted Melody, which is yeah, sort of big fictionized anyway. The true story was that she was really determined and really good and and hard but wonderful and and with a glorious instrument and i mean say she set uh the audience on fire and you know and you know she the the story of her you know at the end of the immolation scene of Goethe Dimrung at the Met, um, her riding off on Grana the horse into the flames. Um, it's sort of true. Um, she actually sort of got on the horse and the horse walked off into, into the wings. But, <laughs> but it's a great story. But fancy that you can imagine the reaction of the audience when, you know, in 1935, uh, when, when that happened, you know, and people in the audience did note that when she came on at that performance, she wasn't wearing her skirt as usual. She was wearing sort of collots. So, so, so she'd be able to jump on the horse. It was all all, all prepared. And I'm, I'm sure that there are a couple of reporters there as well just to witness it. So it'll be, you know, in the, in the newspaper the next morning. But the Marjorie Lawrence thing, look, there are lots of recordings of Marge, uh, but years ago, I bought some um, recordings from an auction and when they arrived, they were the wrong recordings. I bought two um, acetates of Marjorie Lawrence and they sent me, I think, 21 acetates accidentally. <laughs> and, and they turned out to be, um, I didn't know at the time, uh, the unpublished 1945 Columbias uh, that Lawrence had made in America and people had been searching for them for years yep. and they have her comments written in pencil you know on them you know this is not good or something so and you can't release something that the artist doesn't feel, feel or didn't feel comfortable with you know yeah. um, but then years later um, I came across the original tapes for the soundtrack from for interrupted melody and when marjorie was um uh, when the contract came out you know to that mgm was going to make the movie of her autobiography part of the contract was that she would record the the soundtrack herself and in 1955 having uh, you know, being in a wheelchair for 15 years, um, it doesn't do the voice all that good. So she wasn't in tip-top shape. And so MGM didn't use the recordings. And they they did 
new sessions using the voice of my of Eileen Farrell, um, who I, I absolutely adore. But I came across the original tapes of the Marjorie Lawrence soundtrack. And they are wonderful and, and they are recordings of, of repertoire she had recorded, but not in the original language, like the immolation scene she'd recorded fantastically at the age of 23 in French, perhaps perhaps the second best recording of, of that, you know, 22 minute scene ever recorded. Um, but she recorded it in 1955 in German, the Zalame final scene um, in German, which she'd also recorded at 23 in, in, in French. And the Earl King sung in German, um, by Schubert. Oh, and, and also uh, there are recordings of her doing Madame Butterfly and the Samson Delilah, you know, Softly Wakes My Heart in French and in English. And so I put I put all those things um, on, on this new set, uh, along with some early Australian radio broadcasts. And, um, yeah, Marjorie was very much um, into promoting herself as one should be and um, I think the thing you're going the track you're going to play uh, is her uh, introduce or oh, thanking the the Sun Aria winners for that for that year or something and then singing my ain folk I think is that right Peter yes absolutely with your Scottish heritage I thought that was a, a very apt choice but, um, but it's, yeah. well I must say that as I was doing all the edit sound editing for these the Marjorie Lawrence disc, which I do on myself. Um, there are like a thousand different performances of my own folk that Lawrence recorded. And Geraldine, my present wife, um, ended well, up really, really, really... Your only <laughs> wife. And she ended up really, really liking the song. So that's, that's amazing. Anyway, so yeah, my own folk with a bit of interview. Oh, oh, oh. 
Yes, there we go. Marjorie Lawrence and My Aim Folk. Uh, interrupted Melody, uh, Eleanor Parker. I'm curious, Brian, who would play you in your biographical film? Any thoughts? Well, I don't, I don't think there is an actor capable of covering <laughs> <laughs> the A to Z of, of BCO. Somebody who would because be I mean, say Meryl Meryl Streep doesn't doesn't have the artistry. <laughs> Someone who would be very good at covering the A to Z of BCO, I think, is uh, Geraldine Turner, your present wife, as you said <laughs> a, a little bit earlier. Um, I'm delighted that you're, you're covering a, a great range of voices in this series as well. Uh, we've t- spoken about a lot of operatic voices. Uh, Geraldine has certainly appeared on the operatic stage and in operetta, but um, a voice of vast quality. Well, the set is called Great Australian Voices. And look, it's not because I know her quite well, but there is no other music theatre performer that Australia has had that has the voice, the powerhouse voice of Geraldine Turner. Um, there, there are some great performers, uh, you know. I would, and I, I would like to do other recordings of uh, music theatre performers, but the ones I really admire actually didn't record and there are no sort of even pirate recordings of them even enough to fill up a single disc um but yeah and look uh, someone wrote to me yesterday they had heard something on youtube a voice teacher in the states and they were just raving um about her technique and um i i said to him well actually joan sutherland and richard bonding um you know husband and wife um said many years ago, well, they were fans of Geraldine's. Well, Joan, well, Richard is is still a fan, but Joan was a fan. And they both said that she had one of the greatest vocal techniques they'd ever known, which is a bit of a compliment. So um, with the entire series that I've done, I think it's 10 10 volumes now we've done, uh, they usually cover about 40 or 45 years of of career from you know for earliest recording to most recent and because Geraldine is like three generations closer to us than um the, the Marjorie Lawrence um her, her the earliest recording on her set is 1975 I think and so we decided that she should record something now 45 years later after she started a career or 43 years I can't remember and um, so we did and I, th- we, I think we did three new songs a song she wrote herself a Jacques Brel song that um, is a, a, brav- a, a tour de force bravura uh, piece the, the carousel, and well, carousel let's, yeah. let's just have a listen to a smidgy carousel now a crazy carousel and now we go around again we go around and now we spin around we're high above the ground and down again around and up again around So high above the ground We feel we got to yell We're on a carousel A crazy carousel We're on a Ferris wheel A crazy Ferris wheel A wheel within a wheel And suddenly we feel The stars begin to reel And down again around And up again around And up again around So high above the ground We feel we got to yell We're on a carousel A crazy carousel Carnivals and cotton candy Carousels and calliopes Cupid dogs with painted faces Shell games and missing peas Merry-go-rounds Quickly turning Quickly turning for you and me And the whole world Madly turning 
as we can hear, that, that it's extraordinary vocal dexterity. Oh, abs- absolutely. And yeah, yeah she, she does it so brilliantly. Uh, but um, some years ago, like 10 years ago, more, uh, she came, well, she had been asked to do a role in a, a new musical, a new Australian musical called Somewhere, Somewhere, which opened the Q Theatre, is that right, in Penrith or something? That's right. And she yes. came, she had to go and have a sort of a, a sing through or a meeting with the composer, this young guy. And she came back, she said, this guy's really brilliant. You know, I think you'd really like him. I think he's, you know, really, 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 he's going to go somewhere. Anyway, it was Tim Minchin. Yeah. And yeah. and right. they were they were doing the rehearsals and it, n- not because she wanted another song or a, a solo or something, but she she said to him in the during the rehearsal period that she thought that her the character that she was doing was a bit one faceted, so uh, and like a, a bit of Cruella de Vil character and. Perhaps there should be some moment in the second act where the audience finds out that there is some warmth to her, because there's nothing worse than playing to sort of a you know brittle character, I suppose. And she said he went away about two hours later. He came back with this song. I'm so tired, so tired of all of this. All these years of playing the antagonist This is not who I set out to be This eccentric prima donna I don't recognize as me And I'm tired of being left holding the knife Of being the villain in the drama of my life I have long since had my fill Of being this postmodern Cruella de Vil In my heart I am an innocent Ophelia But I know you all see Lady Macbeth And though I always set out to be Show affection 
where they tell you what to do when you've got so much love in you And there we go, the great Geraldine Turner with So Much Love from uh, the musical Somewhere, written by Kate Mulvaney and Tim Minchin. Now, Brian, how can listeners access the series? How can they, how can they purchase it or, or listen to it? You know, you, you can buy all these c- CDs online and the Southern, earlier Southern recordings. Uh, Is that from De- Desiree Records? Well, no, Desiree Records doesn't have a website, but you can contact Desiree Records on Facebook. Uh, or you can contact Brian Castle's Onion on Facebook, or um, they are available on eBay. Isn't that frightful? But eBay, um, because people see them and yeah, yeah, and they have they have a good life. I read in the notes you, you a quote of yours. I have surrounded myself with singers of past generations. After all, we learn from the past. There are great teachers, aren't they, Brian? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, that's what life is all about. It's just that in my in my uh, art form, um, I've looked to opera singers and you know, everyone should, whatever craft you do, you should know about the history of your craft. And, you know, if you're a composer, you should know about whatever. If you're a painter, you should know the history of of all those wonderful Italians, everything, you know, the French. Uh, It's about passing on information and people from the past pass on information to the next generation. And look, I do that in my, you know, opera work. And I hope I do that in this this producing work of Desiree Records. It's an absolute joy for me. I love it. Yeah, it's a great. It's important to preserve the past and and to celebrate those singers who, as you said earlier, didn't necessarily have a, a recording career, but um, certainly contributed quite extensively to uh, the opera scene. Absolutely, in in Australia. Um, thanks for your perseverance today. I think we've done not a bad job, sort of recording uh, remotely. Uh, the connection's been reasonably well, I think. So um, we've always had a connection. We have had a connection. The rainbow <laughs> connection. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Good luck in isolation, and um, we'll chat again soon. The Great Australian Voices series is available from Desiree Records. It's preserving some of the extraordinary talent that Australia has produced. A treat to remember such artistry today with my guest, Brian Castles Onion. As mentioned throughout the episode, Brian, Geraldine Turner and Maureen Howard have all been guests on stages and you're able to locate those episodes for even more information in the archives of the series. Just where you've located this episode. I hope you're faring okay at home and finding much to amuse and entertain. You've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I'm Peter Eyes. Catch you next time.